0: Good morning. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. We are glad to have you here this morning with us. With that, if you will, turn with me to Genesis 2. We're going to start reading in verse 4 and read through verse 9. Genesis 2 and verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations... "...of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this as what it is, your word. As Christ speaks to his church by the Spirit through the word, we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit has superintended through Moses not only for Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, but for your people in every age. We pray that you would chasten our minds of error and cause our hearts to rejoice in the truth. Father, we pray we'd understand That we were created to be in communion with you. And that you would cause us through our union with Christ by faith and the working of the Spirit to draw ever more near to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were created to be in communion with God. We were created to dwell with God in the Garden of Eden where he placed us. And I'll look at that part a bit more next week. But there is no more happy estate than being in communion with God. There is no more happy estate than when the Lord dwells with us and we with him. Psalm 1 is actually picking up that note. Blessed is the man, or we can rightly translate, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And note, the psalmist is now going to put us in an Edenic state. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Whose leaf does not wither. Yields its fruit in its season. That's the happy man. The man who delights in the Lord. This happy estate was lost due to our sin. It was lost due to our rebellion. And our souls long for it. We know our souls long for it. Even on our best days are like a faint echo of a distant country which our souls long for. No matter how beautiful the location, no matter how happy the day, no matter how sweet the fellowship with others, our souls, our hearts long for a better country, for an endlessly happy day, for an enduringly satisfying fellowship. We long for a happiness that we cannot find in the things that have been made. We just do. Augustine, really one of the greatest thinkers in Western history, people will say he's one of the greatest thinkers in the Christian church, but I'll take it a step further and say one of the greatest thinkers in Western history, wrote a book called Confessions. And the confessions were written in a form of prayer to the Lord. It's like his autobiography in the form of a prayer. And in chapter one, he wrote this now famous line, praying to the Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. This restlessness in our hearts is reminding us of what we were made for. It's a reminder of our original state. It's a reminder of what was lost due to sin. And this morning, as we look at Genesis 2, I want to begin by considering our original created state. In other words, the original created state of man. In order to consider that, I really want to consider two points today. There's just two major points. One, the creation of man in relation... To the rest of the creation. So who man is or what man is in relation to the rest of creation. And really that's going to be found in Genesis 2, 5 through 25. So that whole section of text. The creation of man in relation to the rest of creation. And two, most specifically where we're going to hone our time in. Is the creation of man for communion with God. The creation of man for communion with God. So we'll look first at the creation of man in relation to the rest of the creation, and then second, and most of our time will be spent on the creation of man in communion or for communion with God. So let's look first at the creation of man in relation to the rest of creation. Now remember last week I said that Genesis 2-4 is a transition. It picks up from the prologue, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, which is giving us the origin story of creation. And it transitions us to what I call the history of creation, particularly the history of creation regarding the first man and the first woman. In other words, what's going to come in Genesis 2, 4 and following is not a competitive story to the origin story we find in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. It's actually going to give us a history, not only of how man came to be, but what man did, his actions. And that story is going to carry from Genesis 2-4 all the way through the end of Genesis chapter 4. And so we're going to look specifically then at that story, but we really want to hone in on Genesis 2-5-9, through 9. and I want to note the details, note the details Here's the first detail I want you to notice. We are told first in verse 5 that there were no bushes nor plants in the field. Look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. Note that detail no bush nor plant in the field. Second, we're told why this is the case. We're told why there is no bush nor plant. And the reason is there is no rain and there is no farmer. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 5 again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant of the fields had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain. There was no rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. So, there was no bush nor plant in the field because there was no rain and there was no farmer that the Lord had given. He had not yet given rain nor he had given a farmer. Third detail... We're told how that is resolved, how that's resolved. Verse 6, here comes the rain, if you will. And the mist was going up from the land. Now that may be rain, that may be a spring. comes up from the ground. Scholars are divided on that. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. You see the resolution to no rain on the ground. Now here comes the resolution to no farmer. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature so there's the rain and there's the farmer and now here comes the bushes and the trees and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, what's happening here? This description is very different than the description we get in Genesis 1. It's not ordered in the same way as the description we get in Genesis 1. In this accounting, the plants seem to come after the creation of man, don't they? But look at Genesis 1 and verse 11. Mind you, we're in the third day. When is man created? Day six, after the animals. But now we're in the third day, Genesis 1, verse 11. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The third day. So here are the trees and the plants, yet man doesn't come till day six. Why the difference? Why the difference? Now, there have been a variety of answers. There are the people who are just critical of the Bible who say, well, it's just a flat contradiction, as if the people who passed down this book for thousands of years failed to notice that contradiction you know, and it's just a human-made book anyway in their minds. These people are so stupid, they failed to notice a contradiction and smooth it out at some point. It's sort of a nonsensical kind of answer. So people have tried to get to other answers. One that came from critical scholars was called the documentary hypothesis. It came a couple of hundred years ago, also known as the J-E-D-P theory. And that theory is that The Pentateuch, the Torah, the book of Moses has four different sources. And those four different sources of tradition were sort of combined together around 400 B.C. One of the sources or traditions was called the Elohist tradition. Elohist, meaning they tend to use the word Elohim. And the Elohist writer wrote Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. That's why you get Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. And then there was the Yahwist tradition, the Yahwist tradition or Yahwehist or Jehovah from the German because these are Germans who make this stuff up. They are the Jehovah tradition, the J, the E being Elohim. The Jehovah or Yahwehist tradition says that two foreign following is written by that source. That's why you now get the word Yahweh. You see how neat that is? And then when you get to the end of Genesis 3, now you go back to the Eloist, or you go to D, or you go to P, or whichever theory that you're pulling in at that point. It's just something scholars made up a couple hundred years to try to explain their inability to read well. <laughs> to be honest with you, that's what it is. The views that take Genesis 1, there's a second approach, it's a view that take Genesis 1 as non-chronological. In other words, there are several folks that take Genesis 1 as non-chronological. So someone like Augustine, who I just mentioned at the beginning, would say that the third day was God implanting in the ground the ability to bring forth what we see in Genesis 2, but not the bringing forth of it. Augustine thinks that all seven days of creation are really just one day. Now, Augustine still assumed a relatively young humanity with the direct creation of Adam and Eve as the parents of us all. So he doesn't necessarily default to some view where Adam and Eve come from hominids who came from monkeys or something like He doesn't go there. He thinks they were directly created and not that long ago. He says something like 6,000 years. Then there's the view that takes this reference to land in Genesis 2. If you look there at 2.5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, they take that reference to land in Genesis 2 as focused on Adam in the Garden of Eden, Which makes good sense contextually. This word for land or earth can mean land or earth. And it doesn't have to mean the whole planet. It can mean a specific land and is often used to refer to a specific land. And what they're saying is is that our author has taken us from the creation of the heavens and the earth. And has now focused us on specifically Adam in that land which we know of as the Garden of Eden. Which is, in fact, the focus of the entire chapter, isn't it? The whole story of Adam in that particular land. Now, I would concur that we're focused in on the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. That seems fairly clear. However, I really think this text only presents a problem for folks who refuse to read literature as the literature is presented to us. If we try to argue that Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 we're basically being given a replay of Genesis 1, we're missing the point of the narrative. We're missing its point. The project of chapter 2 is not to provide you a chronological history. I know that we love to put everything in chronology on a timeline. But that's not the point of chapter 2. You received that in chapter 1. You received a chronology. The point in chapter 2 is to provide you a, if you will, a thematic account of man's relationship to the creation. You're going to see them, them. To show you man's relationship to the ground. To show you man's relationship to the bushes and the trees. To show you man's relationship to the animals. To show you man's relationship to his wife. And ultimately, to show you man's relationship to the Lord. There's no chronological order in Genesis 2 precisely because it's not an origin story. Let's consider what's happening thematically in Genesis 2. And in doing so, you're going to see Adam's relation to the ground and the garden and the animals and his wife and the Lord. Look at Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust From the ground. This is an interesting language as a play on words here. Ha-adam, the man. Ha-adam, the man, was made from the dust of the ha-adamah, the ground. Do you hear it? Ha-adam, ha-adamah. The man was made from the dust from the ground. There's a pun here. There's an intentional play on words here. In Genesis 2, 5, look there. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no Adam to work the ha-adamah. There was no Adam to work the Adama. adamah Do you hear it? Now, in Genesis 2, 7, we have a man... To work the ground. We have a farmer, if you will. Sadly, we're being set up in Genesis 2 for what will come in Genesis 3. Man is being explained to you in relation to the ground. And in Genesis 3, our relation to the ground is going to change as a result of sin. So look at Genesis 3.17. Look at Genesis 3.17 and the curse. And to Adam, Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the Adama because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Notice his relation to the plants is going to change as well. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the Adamah. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. As one scholar said of the relation of man to the ground, the ground is man's cradle, man's home, and man's grave. And our bodies being created from the ground really becomes a great source of humility for us, doesn't it? John Calvin commented on this. He was talking about the nobility of our being made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we're told that we are created in God's image. And there is a kind of honor, a nobility in being made in God's image. We are, in that sense, honored above all creation, in being made in God's image. We are the crown of creation. It's remarkable that man is referred to in that way. But Calvin comes in and says, but lest we, if you will, meditate too long on our nobility and our honor, let us be reminded that there's a humility that comes from being made of the ground, of the mud, or the dust of the ground. He says this, that being an image bearer is incomparably The highest nobility. Here comes Calvin. But lest men should use it as an occasion of pride, they are reminded of their origin. Adam's body was formed from clay and destitute of sense, so that no one can boast about his body. Now, listen to this. Only an excessively stupid person does not learn humility from this. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Only an excessively stupid person does not learn humility from this. We need to be reminded of that. When we watch a football game and the guy charges into the end zone and, or sacks somebody and beats his chest and points to himself, you should think excessively stupid person, right? And when you remind your spouse of how you've been in some way a better spouse than they have been, you should have a little sign that flashes, excessively stupid person. Right? This is the kind of thing that we ought to be reminded of regularly as we get puffed up with pride. We need to be reminded we're made from the dirt. I mean, literally, this dirt is mud. God took mud and formed you. That's fairly humbling. Maybe as you start to feel fairly self exalted, you ought to go outside and look at the dirt and be reminded. I came from that, I live on that, and I'll return to that. You were made from the ground. If you don't learn humility from that, you're excessively stupid. Isn't that nice? It's good language. It's exactly what we need to hear. You have nothing of yourself. Nothing of yourself. So Adam has a relation to the ground. Further, Adam has a relation to the plants of the ground. Look at Genesis 2, 8, and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now drop down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat. Of every tree of the garden. So Adam has a relation to the ground. Adam has a relation to the plants of the field, to the trees. Adam has a relation to the animals. That's also considered in this chapter is Adam's relation to the animals. Look at verse eighteen. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." God is giving Adam dominion over the beasts of the earth as Adam names them. But if you read this chronologically, it reads almost as if the animals came after Adam. But that is not being necessitated by the text. The point is, there's a relation between Adam and the animals that's being stressed. There's a relation between Adam and the ground that's being stressed. There's a relation between Adam and the bushes and the trees that's being stressed. That's being brought home to you. The relation between Adam and the animals is just this. He has dominion over them. That's why he names them. To name it means he has authority over it in some way. And so he's naming these animals. And he's naming them in their three classifications. I've already told you that that's sort of like the way that they would classify animals in three ways. Domesticated animals, wild animals, and those animals that are close to the ground. And he's naming them. Finally, we learn of Adam's relation to his wife, his relation to the ground, to the plants and trees, to the animals, and now to his wife. Look at Genesis 2:21. And we just heard there was no helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In Genesis 1:26 and 27 we're told that God created man in his image, male and female he created them. We're not being given a contradictory account here in Genesis 2. Rather, we're being given an account that explains the relation between Adam and his wife. Ultimately in this passage we're learning of the relation between Adam and God. Between Adam and God, But we are learning how Adam is related to all the things that God has made. And then we're learning that in the context, ultimately, of the relation between Adam and his creator. The Lord God created him with a particular nature and for a particular purpose, he was given a particular domain the earth. Beginning in the Garden of Eden. And a particular vocation. Work the ground and keep it. Have dominion over all that I've created on the earth. He was also given a particular law. And we're going to consider all of that in the coming weeks. But for now, let's just transition to consider the nature and purpose of man. The nature and purpose of man. In other words, our second major point, I wanted to emphasize the creation of man for communion with God. We were created for communion with God. That's the purpose of our creation, and our nature is created such to that end. So, as we consider the creation of man for communion with God, I want to look at both our nature and our purpose. Those two categories. We'll spend more time on nature than we will on purpose because we're going to continue to deal with purpose next week and the week after, but Let's consider first the nature of man. Look at Genesis 2-7 again. Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. Now notice the Lord God formed the man, formed him or shaped him. I talked about this last week. As a uh, the Lord being pictured here as carefully, intentionally forming or shaping like a potter shaping a pot on a potter's wheel, he's being shown to shape our physical bodies. This is referencing the creation of our physical bodies, or what you might call the material part of man. The material part of man. He took great care in making our bodies. The body is not an accidental feature to humanity. Do you know what I mean by accidental feature? Maybe I should explain that a bit. The body is of the essence of humanity, not an accident of humanity. What's an accident? Let's take it this way. I'm going to say this. Essence, you have a body, or you are body and soul. That's essence. Accident, you have blue eyes. I don't mean accident like, oops, I tripped over that. I mean accident like, if you don't have blue eyes, you're still a human. Brown eyes, you're still a human, right? Blue eyes, you're a human. Your arm is an accidental property of humanity. So if I cut off your arm, you remain a human being. Now, are you as fully human as you can be? No, but you haven't lost your humanness in the loss of your arm, right? Humanity. And what I'm saying is the body is not an accidental feature to humanity. Sometimes we make it out like that. What really matters is the soul. The body doesn't matter. That's a serious error. That's a serious error. It's the error that leads to Gnosticism and that riddled the church with problems for a couple centuries and makes its comeback all the time. You are body and soul. Think about this you don't just have a body, you are a body. It's not just something you have, it's something you are. It's something we've missed the nature of now because even now our body can't tell us anything about ourselves, can it? That's how we seem to see things now. Gender reveal parties suddenly culturally need to be moved till someone's like 18 where they can make their own decision and tell you what it is. But your body, you are your body. You're not trapped in it, it's not just this shell, it's you. It's essential to you, to your humanity. That's why it's resurrected from the dead. The Christian gospel is not you die, your soul is separated from your body, and you go to heaven, and you're the soul in heaven for eternity. The Christian gospel is that you die, and Jesus died in your place. He rose from the dead, and that when He returns, you will rise from the dead and be reunited, body and soul, eternally with Him forever, body and soul. But the body is not all that you are. That's not all that you are. You're not merely body. Look at Genesis 2, 7 again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature or a living soul. This is speaking to the creation of our rational and immortal souls. I want you to hear that. As I said last week, This is incredibly intimate language here as the Lord breathes into Adam's nostrils. We read of this warmly personal language of a face-to-face intimacy with God in creating man. And he made us rational and immortal souls. By rational soul, let me define those two terms. Rational soul, immortal soul. By rational soul, I mean you're not like the animals. Now you would say, Animals don't have souls. The word animal means soul, just so you know. They do have souls. They don't have rational and immortal souls. They are living beings. We have rational and immortal souls. What I mean is animals don't have rational thoughts. So you're not like the animals in that way. Your dog may be wonderful. But your dog is not thinking about its dogness. Your dog is not contemplating his purpose in life. He's not. He's not even able to consider whether he ought to limit his food intake to lose weight. Your dog never thinks that. He just eats what you put in front of him until he can't eat anymore. And some dogs will eat until they're dead if you put enough food in front of them. Some people will too, but that's a problem. (laughs) We are not like animals in this way though. We have consciousness of ourselves. We have language, morality, religion. Your dog doesn't have any of that. Just think about language for a moment. Just think about language. I'll give you an example if I see a red ball, it's over back behind the stage. There really isn't one, but it's not because I'm sort of sick and delusional. I'm just, it's an imaginary example, okay? So I see a red ball back there behind the stage. Now, if I see the red ball, and I see it, there it is. It's a real red ball back there, and now, cognitively in my mind, the red ball's there, right? It's doubled, if you will. It's there, really, and now it's cognitively in my mind, and now, I want to put that red ball into your mind and so I use the words red ball and now it's in your mind. That's amazing. You now know about the red ball behind the stage because I use words and you can picture the red ball in your mind because I picked two words that are associated with that spherical object that takes that color red that because I've described, now it's in your head. Your dog doesn't do that. Animals don't do that. That's amazing that we do that. And that's a simple explanation. I'm not even talking about getting into the difficult concepts that we contemplate. The triune God. That's not explicable by naturalistic or materialistic evolutionary processes. One doesn't evolve into that. Our morality, our religion, our consciousness, and our language are not explicable by the organic matter of your brain. Now, our minds certainly do bear a relation to our brains. They do. Our minds bear a relation to our brains. But they are not fully explained by brain matter. There is not. That's because God did not just make us bodies, He made us body and soul. And our souls are rational. Thus, we can make moral choices. Now, the applications of this to life are legion. But let me give one contemporary example. Let's talk about the denial of the rational soul in criminal justice. Denial of a rational soul in criminal justice. Increasingly, because we've been taken over by a naturalistic and or materialistic kind of understanding of the world... In our politics, in our law, in ethics, we increasingly deny that man is a rational soul. Rather, man is just the outcome of his material or bodily processes. So crime is not being caused by immoral actors. And no one is in prison because they're evil. Rather, what it is, is they're in prison because of some malfunction in their bodily matter or brain matter Or maybe because the society or their parents conditioned them in some way toward their criminal acts. However they got there, what they do not need is retributive justice. They don't need punishment because it's not really their fault. What they need is rehabilitation. They need to be rehabilitated. Why? Because in some way they're broken and they need to be fixed. Not they're immoral and they need to be punished. You see that taking over our system of thought. Now we're going to pick up on that much more fully in the future as we deal with the law God gives Adam in his fall. But the bottom line for this morning that I want you to understand is our souls are rational. And when we start denying that, there's a whole host of problems that come along with it. We do make moral choices. And it's for this reason we can know the Lord. Because we have rational souls, we can know the Lord. We can contemplate him. We can trust him. We can obey him. And we can enjoy him. But I also said our souls are immortal. By immortal, I mean our souls cannot die. Our souls cannot die. Man is created with a body. Now, we're going to deal with this more in two weeks. Man is created with a body that is able to die as a punishment for sin or that is able to gain immortality as a reward for righteousness. That's how our body was originally created. Our body was originally created in the garden, able to die as a punishment for sin or able to gain immortality as a reward for righteousness. But the soul of man cannot die. It was created immortal. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Or more expressly, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the what? The soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now let me pause for a moment. We're going to look at how death came to be as a result of sin more in the coming weeks. But for now, I want to stress this. Due to sin, we all die bodily. We all die bodily. But that's not the end. That's not the end. As a result of our sin, God will cast us, both body and soul, into hell. When you die bodily, you face judgment before God, for it has been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. You will give an account before God for your rebellion against Him, for your law breaking. For your sins. And I want you to pay attention to that language. I did not say you will give an account before God for your brokenness. Or for your hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We use all this language, I think, just to avoid responsibility for sin. To speak as if our sinful choices happened to us. We're like a victim of our own sinful choices rather than as if they were committed by us. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying, I'm not saying you've never been sinned against. Some of you have been sinned against grievously. I'm sure all of you have been sinned against in some way, some in ways that are devastatingly awful ways. What I am saying is that your great concern is not to be healed of whatever hurt some man caused to you. Remember, man can only harm the body. Your great concern is to be forgiven for the multitudinous ways you have violated God's law. For God can cast you both body and soul into hell. I know that's hard for us to hear in a victim culture. In a culture where we think the worst thing that confronts us is what others have done to us. A grievance culture in which we think the purpose of the church is to go around and assuage everybody's grievance. But that isn't what the Bible tells us our biggest concern ought to be. Our big concern is that we, each, every one of us, have transgressed the law of a holy God. A God who in kindness held out his hand to us. We rebelled against him. And his just wrath, his just wrath is bearing down upon us. You're responsible for your sin, and you will face eternal condemnation and hell for your sin. That's our fallen state. But there is hope of salvation. There's hope of the forgiveness of our sins. Your only hope in the face of the grave and the judgment for your sins is found in looking to Christ. It's found in looking to him. The son of God took humanity to himself. He kept God's law in your place. He went to the cross and took the death that was deserved by you upon himself. He was buried and conquered the grave that we all deserve. He did this so that all those who look to him in faith might be forgiven our sins. Declared righteous. Freed from slavery to sin. And live forever in holy communion with him. So we look to him in faith. We repent of our sins and we're saved. If you're an unbeliever, if you've come here as a visitor, I encourage you to look to Christ. I exhort you, look to him and be saved. Look to him and be saved. He will forgive you of your sins. Sovereign grace, your souls are immortal and they're rational. The nature of man is body and soul, a soul that is rational and immortal. But I want to carry our definition of the nature of man a bit further. I want to push it A bit further before we get to the purpose of man, which is only going to take a minute. And I want to say this, that we are what we are before we do. What do I mean by that? A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. We are before we do. So before I can press into our purpose, I want to identify one other aspect of our nature, which I spent time on in Genesis 1, so I won't spend much time on here. We are created as image bearers of God. Body and soul as image bearers of God. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're image bearers? Well, perhaps it's best to say that the whole man bears God's image. Body and soul, we bear God's image. We know that in some sense, the image of God and man was lost at the fall. We know that in some sense it was, and it needs to be restored. But we can also see that in another sense, all humans still bear God's image. That's why when you come to Genesis 5, 1, Seth is bearing God's image. And when you come to Genesis 9, Noah's given the command with regard to capital punishment because when you kill a man, you're killing someone who bears God's image. Or when you come to 1 Corinthians eleven seven, a man bears God's image. Or when you come to James 3, 9, a man bears God's image. So we retain the image of God in one sense after our fall into sin, but we've lost it in another sense. We've lost it in another sense. In what sense have we lost it? Well, in the sense that Christ by His Spirit is restoring it in us. So we hear that we're being recreated as new men in Colossians 3.10 in knowledge, in true knowledge of God. We're being recreated. That's one of the original senses in which we have the image of God that's been lost. The true knowledge of God that's now being restored. Or true righteousness and holiness. The new man's being Restored in true righteousness and holiness in Ephesians 4.24. We were originally created in true righteousness and holiness, but we lost that in the fall, and it's being restored to us in Christ and by the Spirit. See, originally Adam was created in knowledge and true righteousness and holiness, and due to sin, Adam became guilty and corrupt, as did all his progeny. We were all subject to sin and death with him, for death is the consequence of sin, But we were originally created body and soul with knowledge, true righteousness, and holiness for a reason, for a purpose. And that really is how I'm going to conclude the sermon with the purpose of man, which is really where I began. We were created for communion with God. Why did God create man? Well, we know he gave us a vocation. We were to exercise dominion over the earth. So in some way, we were created to rule over the earth, which, which is a kingly office. Further, we were created to work and keep the garden, Genesis 2.15, which, by the way, is priestly language of service, which we'll look at when we get to Genesis 2.15. So there's a priestly office. Finally, we were created to heed God's word and to tell it to our offspring, which is akin to being prophets or a kind of prophetic office. So here's how Herman Bovink, a Dutch Reformed theologian, sums up Adam's image bearing. Listen to what he says. He is the prophet who explains God and proclaims his excellencies. He is the priest who consecrates himself with all that is created to God as a holy offering. He is the king who guides and governs all things in justice and rectitude. And in all this, he points to one who in a still higher and richer sense is the revelation and image of God. To him who is the only begotten of the Father and the firstborn of all creatures. Adam, the son of God, was a type Of Christ. So, how do we sum up this purpose of man? Well, as the crown of creation, we are created to be in communion with God. We were created to know him, to walk with him in the garden, to serve him, to oversee his creation, to keep and proclaim his word and his name. To be in close communion with the Lord is man's happiness. There is no more happy estate than to be in communion with the Lord. And it is this happy estate which we lost and which our souls long for. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our purpose. We see it in our original creation We see it's loss through sin. So Augustine is right that our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the Lord. And Jesus answers this restlessness for us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray.